a distinguished historian of the American South, has been named National Professor of the Year, received the National Humanities Medal from President Obama at the White House, served as president of the Organization of American Historians, and won the Bancroft Prize for Distinguished Writing in American History. He served as the founding chair of the board of the American Civil War Museum here in Richmond and, exec and is executive director of New American History, an online project designed to help students and teachers to see the nation's history in new ways. Ed, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you, Dan. It's my honor and pleasure. Uh, people say that when they get ready to introduce somebody, but I really mean it tonight. Uh, you're getting ready to hear one of the great voices uh, in American history, both literally and figuratively, as you will hear. Uh, David Blight uh, has uh, decades of wonderful contributions to this nation uh, through his books, uh, through his teaching, uh, and through his leadership at the Gildal Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale University, where David teaches. I want to focus briefly on two books uh, that David has written that changed the landscape, and including one that's been very important in Richmond. That, that book was uh, called um, 1991, uh, and it was the uh, race and reunion that imagined all the different ways that people, such as those in Richmond who built Monument Avenue, uh, what they intended, what that meant, the consequences of that. That wonderful book won every prize there is, but it was, didn't win as many prizes as this next one, the wonderful Pulitzer Prize winning Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Uh, it's really one of the great works of our generation of American historians, the scholarship, the writing, the spirit that underlie it are uh, magnificent. So we're really fortunate to have David with us here tonight, and I'm delighted to introduce him to you, David Blight. Uh, hello, everybody, and thank you, Ed, and thank you, Dan, and to the Marshall Center and the Jepson School. I wish we were all in Richmond on that beautiful campus, but we're not. Uh, and uh, that's what we all say now at the beginning of everything, don't we? But it's actually true. Um, I have a lot of good friends out there uh, who will be here tomorrow and speaking at this conference, so hello to all of you. Um, there's quite a community of Douglas scholars, and uh, a lot of us have been collaborators. Um, it's hard to, to decide exactly how in 35 minutes or so to do a keynote on Douglas, especially with all of you great Douglas scholars in the audience. Uh, but I want to begin here. This is a moment in our own history we're living, where every day in every way, uh, we are saying, or the press is saying, that people are having a struggle being hopeful, uh, trying to understand what's happening next. Uh, is our democracy on the verge, uh, at great risk, et cetera? Not to mention that we're in a terrible pandemic and uh, losing people every day. Uh, I want to go back, as I always do, to a passage by Douglas, and it comes at a time of terrible intensity and terrible bloodshed. It's February 1864. All of you know the context of that. Uh, this is before the summer campaigns of 1864. The war is not won or lost yet. The presidential campaign of that year is, 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 is revving up at this time. The Democrats were about to run the most 
racist campaign in American history. I always tell my students that. I tell them it was the most racist campaign in American history until the next one, because 1868 was probably worse. But here's what Douglas said in a February 64 speech. The most hopeful fact of the hour is that we are now in a salutary school, the school of affliction. If sharp and signal retribution, long protracted and overwhelming, can teach a great nation respect for justice, surely we will be taught now and for all time to come. A school of affliction. Uh, the, way, the way Douglas shaped that, of course, for many of you, you know this, comes from his worldview, his conception of history, his sometimes millennialist conception of history or providential conception of history. Um, but we're in a school of affliction. And I think it's an interesting moment to take a day and a half or so to reflect on uh, the ideas of Frederick Douglass, especially his political ideas, although we'll be hearing a good deal tomorrow too about Douglass as a literary figure, uh, and we should. He was, uh, above all, a man of words, a creature of language, uh, a master of metaphor, uh, a genius of storytelling. Uh, just to set a tone here, uh, I'm going to run through a kind of a list I keep making and adding to of why we do come together to talk about Douglas. It's not just because a bunch of us have written books on him. Douglas was arguably uh, the prose poet of American democracy in the 19th century. Surely Lincoln was too. And surely Walt Whitman has some claims to make in there. <laughs> uh, but Whitman was less the prose poet than the lyrical poet. But Douglas had as much to say as anyone about this experiment, this thing called democracy, this thing called an America as an idea, which he both at, at times, certainly early in his life, hated, at least his country but grew then to uh, become a kind of radical patriot of his country, certainly at the time of the war, and then later to be a kind of uh, fierce believer in what he will call the composite nation uh, that he believed the United States could become. I'm gonna try to come back to each of those conceptions, especially that composite nation. I think with unsurpassed eloquence, he explained the nature of slavery, both in its physical and mental terms. And sometimes I think his explanations of the mental impact of slavery uh, are more important than the physical. Uh, he really was a psychologist of the slave experience. That's where the autobiographies, the 1200 pages of autobiography are so important. He expressed with a kind of terrible honesty, I think, and at times uh, what he called in the Fourth of July speech a sacrilegious irony, both the power of America's creeds and the hypocrisy with which his country contradicted and denied them. There's so much talk right now of this idea of hypocrisy. Um, 
Um, some Americans are wringing their hands every day about the alleged hypocrisy of, uh, of uh, one of our political parties and their approach to a Supreme Court appointment. Uh, nobody had a better critique of this idea of hypocrisy and its many uses than Douglas did in the 19th century. Um, to see and to hear Douglas in the 19th century became a kind of wonder of the American world. Um, I speculate in my book that uh, quite likely more people in the United States heard or saw Douglas as a public speaker than any other American. I, I even speculate that he may have traveled more miles than in his itinerant career than any other American, except probably Mark Twain. But Twain went to Asia, so that was cheating. Um, but I have, they're, they're just endless descriptions in the press, uh, especially examples I got out of the Walter Evans collection, which was the reason I did this book, um, of people describing the first time they saw Douglas, what he sounded like, what he looked like, uh, how his voice was, uh, what he said. Uh, it, became, it became a thing to see Douglas. Uh, he was a women's rights man in an age where there weren't very many, especially early in his career. I, as many of you know, and Lee Fott will discuss tomorrow from her terrific book, Women in the World of, of Douglas. Uh, he was the only black abolitionist to speak at the Seneca Falls Convention. He was a complete supporter of women's suffrage. He was also a supporter of women's economic rights, especially in the state of New York, where they kept having a bill before the legislature to try to give women uh, their rights in divorce, et cetera. He made very close friendships with women suffragists. Uh, the, the leadership, Stanton, Anthony, Lucy Stone, and others. Um, that, of course, blew up uh, in, the, in the 15th Amendment crisis, uh, and a lot of people here know that story. But he remained, even in the wake of that uh, bitter uh, fight over the fact that women did not get into the 15th Amendment, he remained a women's rights man the rest of his life, uh, without any question. He could be a radical thinker, and at times he surely was, um, but also an advocate of political liberalism, uh, a believer in the law. At the end of the day, Douglas usually wished for change, great change, but change through law. And he came through the course of the 1850s to believe or to wish that could always be through politics. And one of the interesting things to follow in his thought, and Jim Oakes has done this brilliantly in his book, Radical and Republican, uh, and others in this audience have as well. I've always been convinced that it was Douglas's fear of revolution, his realization that revolution of some kind, bloody revolution, was the only option of ending slavery, attacking slavery and ending slavery, uh, if some means by politics could not be found. It doesn't mean that he didn't shoulder up, as many know, to the possible uses of violence in the 1850s, and he came very close to joining John Brown. Um, 
As I said already, and I'll come back to this, he both loved and hated his country. Depends on when you look. And Douglas is a figure that I think intellectually, especially, we can't fit into boxes. It really depends on contingency and timing and place and the issue. He also believed in self-reliance. He was a fierce proponent of black self-reliance. Uh, preached it all the time. But at the same time, he was a fierce believer in activist, interventionist government to free slaves, defeat the Confederacy, and to protect uh, the black uh, citizens and their civil and political rights against terror and discrimination during Reconstruction and beyond. This, this sometimes false debate that has occurred in our discourse um, between whether Douglas was a proponent of self-reliance or a proponent of activist government, he was both. He had to be both. Name a black leader in the 19th century that didn't believe in self-reliance. They had to. How do you not believe in self-reliance in a world that would enslave you, uh, make you a second-class citizen at best, and then kill you? Just a few other items that may say something about why we're here. He forged a hard-earned pragmatism um, out of political experience, out of tremendous disappointment, sometimes despair, and occasional tremendous victories. I've always found one of the most fascinating things about Douglass's thought is the evolution of a pragmatist as well as a radical. How he was at times a kind of radical pragmatist. That was learned, of course, essentially in the 1850s. But he has to learn it again in different ways during the war years, and then learn it yet again in different contingencies of the Reconstruction years. And I would say that he was fundamentally not a self-made man, despite the claims of one of his greatest speeches, and despite the claims of a portion of the American right today, uh, who love to argue that Douglas was this great proponent of, of, of a self-made man, of, uh, of bootstrap ideology, of self-reliance, and of not relying on government action to change society or help people engage in uplift. I think at the end of the day, Douglas was not the self-made man that he, that he touts in that great speech. There were many people who helped make Douglas, and especially many women who helped make him. That is something I expect Lee will discuss tomorrow. Um, also, that self-made man speech, if, if anyone has not read it, uh, it gets a bad break or a bad rap at times. It's actually a brilliant speech. It's really about the power of the human will. And it's, and it's full of name dropping. Uh, it's amazing uh, how many people get mentioned in that. Um, I, w I went through uh, the self-made man speech at one point and made, a, made a, a long list of all the people in history that he names and mentions or quotes. The Bible was first, Shakespeare was second. No surprise, it's always that way with Douglas. Then came Lincoln, then came Robert Burns, 
And then a whole slew of people who got two mentions and a whole slew of people who got one mention. Emerson's in the two mentions, I think. He read Emerson carefully. They did meet. Uh, they were on the same platform at least once. And then I'd say he seized, this is I think terribly important in understanding him, he seized the King James language of the Bible and used it to deliver the most enduring critique of slavery, the coming of disunion, the Civil War, emancipation, reconstruction, and beyond of any American of the 19th century. Douglas was profoundly steeped in the Hebrew prophets, deeply read in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos, and for that matter, Genesis. He used the Noah's Ark story all the time to, to different ends. Um, and I'd say two other things. For those, I, I usually reserve this one for public audiences, so this is mostly a scholarly audience, I suspect. But, you know, there's, one of the things I learned on what felt like endless book touring until all that ended <laughs> in March is that people are yearning, and I'm not, I know a lot of you have experienced this with your own books. People are yearning for history that gives them some kind of grounding, history that gives them some kind of moral message, moral core. Um, there was a moral purpose to Douglass's politics. It was rooted, as some of you have argued beautifully, uh, Peter Myers, uh, Nick Bukala, uh, Jim Oakes, and others. Uh, it was rooted particularly in his faith in, his belief in, unending, unbreaking faith in the natural rights tradition, which he defined many, many different ways at different times and, and gave it many, many different uses. Um, I, I like to, I argued in the book, I tried to show, though it's a bit speculative, that I think Douglas began to learn his natural rights tradition uh, when he was a child. I think he began to learn his natural rights tradition on the Y plantation, watching those blackbirds fly over him and wondered why those wonderful creatures of nature could be so free. And I think he learned it from what he called the boys of Philpot Street. These uh, Irish, uh, maybe some German immigrant kids who were 10 years old and his playmates, uh, his buddies on the streets before they'd learned their racism. Uh, he, at least in retrospect, he talks about the terrible irony that he began to understand that th these white kids are free and he's not. Uh, well, how can that be? And then they would ask him, hey, Fred, why aren't you? And that's, he didn't have to read Locke. He didn't have to read um, the great writers of the Enlightenment tradition to, to begin to understand natural rights. Slavery taught him ways to understand na natural rights. He then read a lot later of, about the Enlightenment and from the Enlightenment. And Douglas was always in his ideas a product of these two great traditions of uh, the biblical tradition, especially uh, Old Testament storytelling, Old Testament metaphor. He made so many uses of Exodus, you can't count them. Um, but then also he's a product, of course, of the Enlightenment tradition, both the sacred and secular tradition. Nothing new about that. That's the story of so many Americans. 
in the 19th century. And then last but not least, uh, I put the word profit in the title of this book. It took me a long time to get up the courage to do that, because uh, that's a big word. And you know, you shouldn't throw it around like, uh, like a plaything. And I've said this publicly many, many times, but I just had an experience last night of speaking to a large audience of about 140 or 150 uh, members of the Jewish community, mostly around Yale and its diaspora. It was the Yale Jewish Center that sponsored the talk, and they wanted me to talk exclusively about Douglas and the Hebrew prophets, and I was shaking in my shoes. I figured I was finally going to get my theological comeuppance. Uh, I was finally going to get somebody telling me I didn't know what I was talking about, but I got off. I got off easy. They were nice to me. But before I, before I gave the talk last night, I sat down just from my own book, just from my own uses and quotations and references. I just made a list of all the times Douglas invoked the, the prophet Isaiah. And I was up to some 16 uses just in my own book. Um, that doesn't even count all the ones that I didn't happen to quote. And I, I was just, I had never, I'd never done that. I'd never gone through it. And I, I haven't done it for Jeremiah yet either. But I just started trying to put some of them together and realize, well, how, how is he using that passage? Why does he always go back to that passage? Um, and so on and so on. The Bible for Douglas was a source of story a story in which he could find himself, his people, and his nation. There's something about him that uh, in Douglas scholarship, over the years, perhaps we, I don't know, maybe we didn't pay enough attention to that, and maybe I overdid it. Because I am still waiting for that book review by the theologian. Uh, it's been two years, man, I've really gotten off. I've gotten a pass. Uh, I've been waiting for the review by a theologian that's just going to take me to pieces. Um, but if it weren't for uh, three theologians in particular who are good friends of mine, I would never have been able to, to execute that part of the book. For one thing, I didn't have the confidence. And above that, I, I, I didn't fully have the understanding yet. But dear friends of mine, uh, Don Shriver, who used to be the president of Union Theological Seminary, now in his 90s, uh, got me reading Walter Brueggemann, among other Old Testament scholars. My, my dear friend Richard Rabinowitz, whom some of you know, the great curator, historian, and a deep reader of everything from the Greeks in Greek to the Hebrew prophets in Hebrew, got me reading Robert Alter, among others. And then I've become very close friends with a rabbi here in uh, New Haven named Jim Ponet, who used to be head rabbi here at Yale. He's now retired. He started attending my classes. We became friends. He learned of my dilemma with Douglas. And he started giving me people to read. And uh, one of the people he had me read, above all else, um, was Abraham Heschel. And I say that in particular because Heschel really became a key for me that opened doors. Abraham Heschel, possibly the greatest Jewish theologian of the 20th century, um, wrote many, many, many books, but he wrote that huge tome called The Prophets, 
And the first chapter of that book, if you read no, no other parts of it, is, is incredible. It's about 60 pages of him trying to define what a prophet is. And I read Heschel very carefully for quite a while. And, and the more and more I read Heschel, among others, I began to read passages where I would say, aha, that's Douglas. Uh-huh, that's Douglas. Oh yeah, that's Douglas. I'll give you just one passage and then I'll get off this. One passage from Heschel. The prophet is human, said Heschel. Yet he employs notes one octave too high for our ears. He experiences moments that defy our understanding. He is neither a singing saint nor a moralizing poet, but an assaulter of our mind. Often his words begin to burn where our conscience, conscience ends. An assaulter of the mind. That's Douglas. Douglas had that ability, uh, partly from mystery and partly from study, to find the words to explain. That's what a prophet really is. That's what, and there aren't very many of them. There's a good reason there aren't very many of them. Um, and they're not fun to have lunch with. Uh, they're troubling. They're supposed to be. That's their job. And they often fail. But Douglas was one of those people, the more you read him in his millions of words that, that just hit you between the eyes with an explanation of something, a metaphor, a passage, and you have an aha moment, you reread it, you underline it, and you think, my God, how'd you come up with that? Okay, uh, in my remaining minutes here, I'm gonna jump through the Civil War, which is hard to do, in a way, I mean, it's transformative, of course, in Douglas's life. Everybody here knows that. Um, he interpreted it through a lens of both theology and secular philosophy and a hell of a lot of wishful thinking. <laughs> it was a bloodletting and a crisis he wished for and clearly welcomed. And he became one of the most vicious uh, chest-thumping war propagandists the United States has ever produced. Um, uh, I have a whole chapter on that in the book. Um, and he had a right in the end to claim uh, a sense of victory, to say the least. But I really want to go to one other speech of his and events surrounding it, and hopefully stay with this theme that maybe the theme of this conference, which is uh, Douglass's political ideology, whether it manifests in his literary works or it manifests in his oratory uh, or in his philosophical speeches, like the ones he gave on the anti-slavery interpretation of the Constitution. But this speech um, doesn't get a lot of play. I mean, it's, it's a very important speech, but it doesn't get a lot of attention it's called the Composite Nation, or Composite Nationality sometimes. The text you will find, if you look it up, is from 1869, but I think he first gave it in 1867. It reflects uh, not the despairing Douglas, of course. It reflects, if anything, the most sanguine Douglas will ever find, the most hopeful Douglas will ever find. Uh, this is the Douglas of three years or so, four, three to four years 
after the war, after the 13th Amendment, after the 14th, and in the 69 text, it's just as the 15th Amendment has been passed, which he was, you know, partly disappointed by, but nevertheless, there it was. It's after the Reconstruction Act, after the first Civil Rights Act. Radical Reconstruction is in its heyday, what that little brief heyday that it had. This speech perfectly fits. You know, Grant's been elected. It's 69. Even into 70, this speech still fits. But it's very hard to find any example of him ever giving the speech again after the early 1870s. I can't find any. Maybe somebody out there has. Um, it's a speech that argues, among other that the United States has just been reinvented. It has just been redefined. It is the second republic now. That argument that so many of us have been using and making for decades now. Uh, the second revolution has been won. The Constitution is new. And Douglas believes this new America has a new ideology, a new egalitarian ideology, a new democratic ideology. And he becomes practically overnight even uh, a kind of expansionist, a soft imperialist, uh, what we might today call a soft imperialist. Uh, they didn't have that term back then, but that's what he became. He began to argue that Americans, America has a new ideology that it ought to, it ought to export. It should, it should export it to the Caribbean. It should export it to South America and perhaps even elsewhere in the world. Wherever there were peoples, especially black, brown, or darker peoples, who were still living under some form of slavery, bondage, oppression, brutal discrimination, uh, what have you. The United States ought to be an exporter of its second revolution. He was not alone in this by any means. A lot of former abolitionists argued this, not Charles Sumner, famously. He and Sumner have a real divide over this issue, as a lot of you may know. But it's a new nation, a new country, uh, and, and it ought to be a new expansionist country. It's just had a new founding. And he, of course, was part of Grant's, uh, well, he was like a secretary to Grant's commission to Santo Domingo, and he went on the uh, expedition to Santo Domingo in 1870 or 71. Um, believe now that if the United States could be this new nation born out of blood sacrifice, it owed it to the world to spread this vision of a multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-religious nation living under essentially section one of the 14th Amendment, living under equality before law living under a federalized Bill of Rights. It's a grand vision, incredibly hopeful vision. Um, one point in the uh, speech, he stops and carefully defines what a nation is. And this is a forerunner of Benedict Anderson. Remember Benedict Anderson? We used to all have to quote Benedict Anderson on, on nationalism or what's a nation. Uh, Benedict Anderson used to be in the first footnote of everything you read. Not, not anymore, now there's plenty of other people who have to be the obligatory footnote. But here was Douglas's definition of a nation. He said a nation, quote, implied a willing surrender and subjection of individual aims and ends 
often narrow and selfish, to the broader and better ones that arise out of society as a whole. It is both a sign and a result of civilization. We give up something precious to us to be part of a whole. Sounds so quaint now, doesn't it? I mean, what a quaint idea. Um, comedy, civility, compromise. <laughs> um, then Douglas went on to argue that a nation is essentially a story. You know, an imagined community, he didn't use that term. Um, I don't know if Benedict Anderson ever read Frederick Douglass, I doubt it. Uh, but he said, it's, it's a story. It's ultimately a narrative. That's what memory is all about, isn't it? We've learned that. And he said that ultimately, the United States has become, because of the war, because of emancipation, because of the transformation of the Constitution now, if it can be held, it had become, quote, the most fortunate of nations and at the beginning of our ascent. Now, this was the same Frederick Douglass, who at times in his earlier career, as some of you know, especially in the late 1840s and at various times in the 1850s, had absolutely condemned the United States in about as bitter language as anybody ever used. Some of the most embittered language came right after he returned from England in 1847 and into 48, when he's that young, very angry, uh, increasingly radical abolitionist who is breaking away from William Lloyd Garrison and Garrisonian moral suasion. He's eager to find a politics. He's eager to find a new strategy, a new ideology. And he said things like, and he said this over and over in speeches, I have no love for America. I have no patriotism. I have no country. And typical of Douglas' speeches, he would make that into a refrain. The institutions of this country, he said in another speech in the late 40s, do not know me, do not recognize me as a man, except as a piece of property. And he went on to conclude that particular speech by saying, I desire to see it, the United States, overthrown as speedily as possible and its constitution shivered into a thousand fragments. Now that's the same Douglas who's gonna make the composite nation speech in 1869. We know some of the reasons for these changes, but if nothing else, it shows us what a profound transformation. First of all, the political abolition movement was for Douglas, then the war, then emancipation, then reconstruction. A transformative revolution had happened that takes him from that one kind of rhetoric to this new kind of rhetoric. Now, in the, in the middle of the speech, and by the way, he lays this out in the most, most you know, eloquent and, and glorious of terms. This is gonna be a country now that is multi-religious, multi-ethnic, and multi-racial in ways he says no other people in all of human history have ever had the chance to do. But in the middle of the speech, he stops and for about five pages of text, he argues for Chinese immigration. He just inserts this support of Chinese immigration into this composite nation speech. And there's good reason here that the question of Chinese immigration, Chinese labor in the West, of course, 
is becoming a big issue, uh, increasingly a big political issue. The first Chinese Exclusion Act won't come till 1874. That'll be against women. The big Chinese Exclusion Act will come in 1882. But Douglas takes up this question and he says, America, get ready. The largest civilization on the planet, the oldest civilization on the planet is coming to America. And it's typical of Douglas. He converts it all into metaphors. He's, they're coming over the rivers. They're coming over the mountains. They're coming from all directions. But he says, deal with it. Get ready for it. Yes, he says they speak alien languages. Yes, they have alien gods. Yes, they have strange cultural habits and so on and so forth. But he says, they've been around for thousands of years. Let them bring their genius. And he folds all of this into, as you might expect, a theory of assimilation. He's an assimilationist. Now, sometimes people in our own time have actually back to the black power movement and then even since um in fact my, my good friend ibram kendi has has criticized douglas for being too much of an assimilationist i never quite fully understood that argument i'm not sure how he could not have been but he says look the chinese will buy our creeds they will buy into the first principles of the Declaration of Independence. They will buy into equality before law. Give them enough generations, and they will defeat your nativism. And then, of course, there's a naivete in that, I guess, isn't there, to say the least. Um, in fact, but 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 he does it brilliantly. If you go to this speech, you'll see it. I just want to I want to pounce on this point just one brief moment here, and then I'll. I'll wrap this up. And he gets inside the mind of the nativist and the xenophobe and the racist uh, and the anti-immigrant mind. And he says, he goes inside of their voice. He says, quote, are white people not owners of this continent? Is there not such a thing as being more generous than wise? In the effort to promote civilization, may we not corrupt and destroy what we have? Yeah, and he's poking away there at the false empathy of, of racist. And, and then he says, there are such things in the world though, as human rights. They rest upon no conventional foundation, but are eternal, universal, indestructible. There's that natural rights tradition again, just popping out of him when he needs it. Pops out all the time in Douglass's thought, especially when he dearly needs it, as he will do later at the end of his great lynching speech at the end of his life. He said, we are a country now gathered here from all, I'm quoting him, all quarters of the globe, all come as strangers, but within American creeds, they can find their quote, Home. Now, that speech, if you just pick it up and read it, sounds today almost like a, uh, it sounds like the mission statement of any American university. It sounds like a diversity statement. It sounds like a multiculturalism manifesto of maybe 1996 in some school system. Uh, it's much more eloquent than those statements ever are. Um, but it was Douglass's claim that the United States had been remade, if they could hold it, if they could hang on to it, if they could you know, keep creating it, 
and that they ought to now take it out and export it. Uh, the speech ends turning to the idea of nature and that all races, ethnicities, religions, all peoples are of one nature and of one God. Ultimately, he did say one God, I'm sorry, even though he's being a multiculturalist. Um, and in the end, uh, it's a speech just designed kind of as like a, like a fanfare for the new America created by the Civil War. But as I said, uh, I can't find an example of him taking it on the road anywhere after about 1870 or 1871. It just didn't fit the context of Southern redemption, of the betrayal of Reconstruction, and certainly of the era of the 1880s and into the 1890s. It's a particular speech of Douglass's that is more than worth reading, reflecting on, drawing on in this historical moment we're living now. How are we doing with that composite nation idea? How are we doing with that country that was going to become the multi-ethnic, multi-racial, uh, multi-religious society that no one else had ever attempted? Uh, how are we doing with that idea of uh, comity, uh, or unity? Um, I remember a quote that Joe Biden used, I think it was in his acceptance speech at the convention uh, or maybe somewhere else where he was being Joe Biden. He said, they, meaning the other side, are not our enemies. They are only our opponents. Really? <laughs> um, are we in a time when we only have opponents? Or we actually have enemies? Anyway, thank you. I uh, look forward to questions, comments, and I very much look forward to all of your talks tomorrow and having a chat with Ed Ayers at the end of all this. Uh, thank you very much. Well, thank you, David. Yeah, I can hear the clapping out there. Uh, really appreciate a, a summary of, of all the tensions in Douglas's life and his thought. And, and should get a copy. I'm, I'm guessing that we have we do have quite a few scholars here tonight, but there are plenty of people who of uh, hitting really the key points uh, of the book. And there's so much more to, to be said. Uh, but I, I really appreciate uh, the way you the way you framed it. I have a question here from Nolan Nolan Bennett, I guess. Um, thank you for the great talk. With all jokes about Douglas as, quote, somebody who's done an amazing job and is being recognized more and more aside, what's the right way to connect Douglas to the present while acknowledging what among our present crises are unique and may require different or more contemporary voices? 
Well, we all get asked for those now, don't we? I, I used you used to be able to say to counterfactuals, I don't know, I'm a historian, and we don't do that, but can't do that anymore, I've learned in the last few years. Um, <laughs> Ed, I'm sure that's happened to you all the time. Um, you know, first of all, all present crises are unique. There's a new context. Uh, no historical parallel is ever direct. But by God, it's hard not to think with a few of them. There are analogies that are useful. Um, in Douglas, among other things, again, if, if you take a little time, sit with him, read, say, particularly his, his political editorials of the 1850s, if you read about his trajectory in that decade leading up to disunion and war, uh, you read some of his great speeches, especially the 4th of July speech, and, and then I have a list of like top five or top 10 others. Um, you get a sense of the evolution of a crisis in his life, multiple dimensions of a crisis in his life, and the life of his country and the nation uh, and everybody in it. Um, it's remarkable now how common it has become. It used to be just you had to be so careful about drawing analogies from the 1850s to our current political predicament. Although Jim Oaks helped me put together an entire conference, I don't know, was it two years ago, Jim, or three years ago at the Gilder Lehrman Center here at Yale? It was a great conference. We, we, we used the 1850s to think about now. You know, we weren't instrumental about it. We didn't say this is happening just like that. Nobody did that but it was a kind of a then and a now conference. Uh, how does past, how do past and present flow into one another? And it was actually very useful. What's, what I'm struck with right now is how often the 1860 election analogy is emerging. I've used it myself. Uh, I've used it in an op-ed now, and I've, on, since I just joined Twitter a week ago, uh, for reasons I still can't explain. Um, I've used it on Twitter now a number of times. Um, so, you know, it, it, and I'll say one other thing about that. I mean, one of the things Douglas will help you do is to keep a long view of history. You know, people don't always like to hear that from us historians. Oh, keep the long view, because people want answers now. They want to know how history can be instrumental. Uh, help us now. Um, Douglas lived through, I mean, you can just count the crises in his life. Personal crises and then the great political crises of his nation, his people, his, his world, over and over and over again. Uh, he, he encountered this rise and fall of this idea of whatever you want to call it, progress, I suppose, in the 19th century, but steps ahead and two steps back. Uh, his, chart his course, as Jim Oaks does brilliantly in his book, uh, Radical and the Republican, chart his course into the Republican Party. If you want to learn about how difficult it is to make your peace uh, with a political organization that you, you never quite completely agree with, but they give you hope. And that's an experience we've all had in probably one way or another. Uh, chart his, his trajectory with issues like violence, the possible uses of violence, how close he came at times, how he did not want to, frankly, not only did not want to enact violence, but he didn't know how. 
Nobody knew how to foment slave insurrections as a way of overthrowing slavery. And especially former fugitive slaves knew what the consequences would be. They knew who would die if that happened. He got close to John Brown, but did not join him. Chart his relationship with Abraham Lincoln, which is tortured at first. Uh, downright almost, you know, contemptuous at first, but then they grow toward one another. Uh, chart his trajectory on reconstruction issues. My God, that hopeful composite nation speech turns into a speech by 1875 where he says, if war between the whites bought, brought peace and freedom to my people and the country, what will peace among the whites bring? In other words, he was, he was saying, what will this kind of white supremacist reconciliation mean to the victories we've won? It's a prediction of what's going to happen to Civil War memory. Um, chart his trajectory on the issue of uh, lynching. And you'll find one after another of issues he encountered that are not unlike, they're not the same identical, but they're not unlike the issues that we still face today. How about the question of federalism? He hated states' rights. It had to him a terrible history. Uh, he didn't like federalism, but he had to learn some way to cope with it too, because he realized it was one of the deepest of American traditions that could not be you know, dislodged. And Charter's trajectory on the Constitution, which I think Jim Oakes will do tomorrow, that's a tortured process. Uh, and it was that concept of property and man that ultimately got Douglas to the point where he said, no, 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 I want the Constitution on my side. First it was a strategy, then it was belief. You cannot have property and man. And if you can't have property and man, then the Constitution is anti-slavery, he argued. His, his views on the Constitution are much more complicated than that, but that, that idea of property and man uh, was the dividing point. Anyway, so whatever big issue in his life you dig down into, you'll find resonances to today. It's just another way of saying Reconstruction is never over in America. Okay, we have, a, we have another question. Um, did Douglas have any thoughts on the condition of blacks across the diaspora in Africa and South America, especially since he lived when Europeans were growing empires in Africa and Asia? Yeah, that's always a disappointing uh, answer, I think, to some. Douglas was not only not a Pan-Africanist, um, he struggled to be seriously interested in Africa. I hate to put it that way. Uh, it's not that he wasn't interested in African history or uh, in the Atlantic world by any means, uh, but he did become, there's no question, an Anglophile. Um, his experience with Europe was largely in Ireland, Scotland, and Britain, although he did do uh, an extraordinary 11-month tour of Europe and then of the Mediterranean including Egypt, in 1886 uh, with his second wife, Helen. Uh, there is some writing on this about Douglas's lack of a serious uh, uh, interest in the plight of African peoples under European colonialism. 
and imperialism. He really did not have a great deal to say about that. Uh, there, 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 are, there are possible apologetic answers for that, that he was overwhelmed with the American race dilemma, uh, that he was, you know, so focused on trying to achieve, you know, black freedom and, and, and liberty and rights in this country that he didn't have enough time and space left for uh, a kind of diasporic point of view. Uh, there are other kinds of ways of explaining it too. He really, really was um, an American. He never uh, supported black emigration schemes uh, before the war. In the late 1850s, there were several of them uh, for good reason. I mean, the most despairing time for African-American leadership in the North of all probably was the late 1850s, uh, especially after the Dred Scott decision. And Douglas fought and tangled like hell with other black emigrationists like Martin Delaney, like Henry Highland Garnett, and some others. Although he did look briefly at the possibilities of emigration to Haiti. Um, so he, he um, I hate to put it that way, but it just was not a primary interest to him. However, no, wait, I'll, I'll, there's, there's one caveat here. He does, of course, become the US minister, which meant ambassador to Haiti in 1889 and served two years. A very turbulent, complicated service as the US minister to Haiti, where he was trying to enact and enforce and negotiate a policy he soon came to not believe in, which was the United States interest in seizing a piece of Haiti, namely a huge, gigantic port up on the north coast of Haiti. Um, there he, uh, he did develop a, a certain kind of Atlantic, hemispheric conception of the plight of black people, no question. Um, there have been some who have argued that he really did become a Pan-Africanist of a kind then. I'm not so sure of that. Um, he did develop a tremendous uh, interest in empathy for the Haitians, and of course they paid it back to him by asking him to be their representative at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. Uh, here's a question from one of our students. We had a, we had a group this spring that, um, that read uh, the book, and um, mm. we had some just terrific uh, discussions, and my hope is that Great. So we Thank you. hear yeah, throughout tomorrow. And this one is from, from Mads uh, Tolstorff. She, she asked, thank you for that wonderful talk. After reading your book, it was great hearing it from you. Which speech of Douglass's do you think would be the most impactful or the most appropriate if he were to speak today during these times? <laughs> well, I'd have to say the 4th of July speech. It's the rhetorical masterpiece of American abolition. Uh, it's a work of, of true genius. It's, it's an amazing piece of rhetoric. I call it a symphony in three movements. Um, but you know, a speech I think he, he, we might want to read from him right now is a speech in 18, it's the winter of 1865. Uh, he gave it for four months throughout the, like January to April, the last months of the war. It's called What the Black Man Wants. And he makes in this speech a ferocious argument for the right to vote. 
Uh, he says the right to vote is a sacred right. He said black people will never be free without the right to vote. And he makes this forceful case about how voting, whether you believe it or not, is a, in, in, in democracy is a mode of protection. It's how people protect themselves. Now, it turns out that doesn't exactly work against the Ku Klux Klan and other terrorist organizations. But it is, it, and it's, and it's, the war's not even over. And he's making his case for the right to vote, uh, which wouldn't have been terribly popular with a lot of his audience, especially white audiences. But it, it's, and, and he goes for, he, he almost says it in that speech, but later on in speeches on, on the suffrage and the right to vote, he was quite radical about the right to vote. He even supported mandatory voting. He, he, he made a case, not in that speech, I think it comes later, he made a case that people should be taxed if they don't vote. You know, um, <laughs> so I mean, you, you, trot that out and ask your class uh, who supports mandatory voting and paying a penalty, you know, legal penalty if you don't vote. Uh, there are days when I'd, I'd support that. Uh, so try out, try have a look at that speech. It's not too long. It's called "What the Black Man Wants." Um, because voting is so much on our minds right now. Yeah. Good advice. Here's, a, here's another question from a student uh, from Calvin Hogg. He was also in a seminar. Uh, to what extent was Frederick Douglass influenced by German philosophers? Was mm. that an outlet for him to understand German works? And if so, what era of German literature was most influential? And also contrasting the Enlightenment with the contemporary styles from Continental. Well, by far the greatest philosophical and literary influences on Douglas were Anglo. Uh, he was a, a nearly lifetime fanatical reader of Robert Burns. Like it or not, he loved Robert Burns. He loved Dickens. Everybody loved Dickens. He owned three complete works of Shakespeare, and he could trot off Shakespeare quotes as well as anybody, which was common in the 19th century. But he, he'd read his Shakespeare, a lot of it. Um, now, there is a case that can be made that he was somewhat influenced by Feuerbach. However, um, get Lee Fought in on this tomorrow, too. Uh, he did read Feuerbach. Feuerbach was the famous German philosopher who, among other things, was a philosopher of agnosticism, some say atheism. Douglas had a long-term friendship relationship with a German woman named Otilia Assing. If you've read the book, you know about this. She's woven through many chapters. She was a German intellectual, a German 48er, a highly educated, highly well-read woman. And she claimed in her letters, though he never claimed this, that she had got him to read that she had taught him to read enough German that he could read German in the original, which I don't believe is true. And she claims that she got him to read Feuerbach and converted him away from his Christianity, which I don't believe for a minute either. Um, but, but he did have a bust of Feuerbach in his house at Cedar Hill. He did own Feuerbach, uh, Feuerbach's book. Um, and it's possible he had read some Goethe. Schiller, maybe, the German romantics. He loved the English romantics. So it's possible, but he didn't own any of the German romantics that I can remember. I got into his book collection. It's, it's, it's around 3,000 volumes. They're held by the National Park Service 
in a warehouse in Landover, Maryland. They're amazing. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't scribble in his books. I was looking for all kinds of marginalia, you know, which would be the keys that opened the kingdom, but not much. Um, a lot of people in the 19th century didn't scratch in their books the way we do. Um, but he had a tremendous collection of English literature, especially the romantics, the poets, um, um, complete works of Dickens, complete works of Shakespeare, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Scott, uh, he took his name from Sir Walter Scott. So I wish I could tell you he was highly influenced, especially by Goethe, uh, but I don't think he was. <laughs> okay, we have, I think we have time for maybe one more question. Um, sure. Mr. Nicholas Bukala. Thank you, David. Uh -huh, Nick. Yeah. He's, well, coming, yeah. He's, coming, he's coming for natural rights here. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, sort of. You, you invited us to enter Douglas's mind as he imagined the mind of the nativist, and you, sh you shared his natural rights response to those nativists. What do you make of the fact that some of the leading scholars associated with the new nativism, think intellectuals for Trump crew, also claim to be devotees of natural law and natural rights. I wonder if your work on memory might help us make sense of this apparent paradox. What games are they playing with historical memory? <laughs> wow, that's a classic question where Nick knows all the answers. Uh, I, I love the question though, Nick. Let's pick it up again tomorrow. Um, well, let's say, for example, that little book that came out from the Cato Institute. Um, what's the guy's name? Sandiver? San 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 Sandiver? I forget. Forgive me for forgetting his name. The book is called Self-Made Man. It's a short book uh, paid for by the Cato that just takes Douglas, plucks him right out of a few speeches during Reconstruction where Douglas famously said, leave the Negro alone. Uh, let him let him alone, uh, you know, don't bother him, uh, and then give him fair play, although that book doesn't spend much energy uh, finishing the sentences about fair play. Uh, it's a, uh, a cherry-picking, Nick, it's a cherry-picking of rhetoric. This is where the memory question comes in. The right in this country has been appropriating Frederick Douglass for a long time. Sometimes that's just raw politics. Republican Party does it, because Douglass was a Republican in the 19th century, a very different kind of Republican Party, well, at least the original one. Uh, sometimes that's just raw politics, but sometimes it is philosophical. Because as I tried to say at the outset there with one of my 10 points or whatever many there were, Douglass was a fierce believer in self-reliance. And man, you can find those, there are lots of passages and speeches, especially when he had black audiences, where he is arguing, stop complaining, build your own community, develop your own economy, get an education, own property. It's the same stuff he preached to his own sons and his daughter. And there's a certain actually tragic character to a lot of that. The letters between Douglas and his four adult children can break your heart because they all struggled to make living, make a living. His oldest son, Lewis, did all right, but the rest had a very difficult time getting work, keeping jobs. Um, his daughter, Rosetta, who was the best educated of all of his children, made a terrible marriage and had seven babies, which uh, you know, pretty well locked up 
her aspirations. But he was always preaching this self-reliance to his kids and then getting letters back from them where they're begging for money. And he sends them money. It was a, it was a source of great contradiction and disappointment within his own personal life. But out on the stump, whoa, could he preach self-reliance. But at the same time, he demanded that the United States had freed the slaves. The Union Army had freed the slaves. And the United States was responsible for protecting the liberties, the rights, the security of the freed people. Um, you know, he did fall out of touch on some of these issues, like when he argued against the Kansas exodus, uh, the late 1870s. Uh, he was kind of out on a limb almost all by himself on that issue. But uh, to get the next point here, this is a problem of memory. I'll give you one just illustration of this. This is where the raw politics comes in. Um, the scholars for Trump crowd, I don't even know how to go there, uh, to be honest. Uh, I, you know, you want to, I guess you want to take them seriously, but I don't know. If, if they're the people who showed up at President Trump's so-called history conference last week, then uh, I have a problem with that. But about five years ago, uh, maybe six now, uh, the United States uh, as a government unveiled a Douglas statue in Statuary Hall in the US Capitol. Many of you probably know this. Every state gets two, including the district. For this purpose, the District of Columbia is, is considered a state, but not for anything else. Uh, so they chose Douglas as one of their, he lived the last, you know, 20 some years of his life in DC and he's so associated with Washington. And it was an amazing event. If you ever get a chance to go to one of these, go, because it's, it's an act of Congress. So the entire leadership was there. John Boehner was still uh, Speaker of the House. Um, Nancy Pelosi was Minority Leader. Schumer was Minority Leader, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, McConnell was, I don't know, were they majority or minority then? I can't remember. And then Joe Biden spoke as vice president. So the entire government was there. Every Republican gave an eight minute staff prepared speech arguing what a great Republican Frederick Douglass was, how he was a great believer in individual rights and personal responsibility. And then every Democrat got up and gave a staff prepared speech on how Douglas was a great proponent of District of Columbia home rule, which he was actually in the 1880s. He, that part's actually true. He did support home rule for the district and statehood in the 1880s. Um, but but it, was, uh, it was totally partisan. <laughs> and, and the Douglas descendants, which is how I got invited, I, I've become very close friends with um, Ken Morris and a bunch of the Douglas descendants, they invited me to come. And a lot of Republicans, I'm just being honest here, were walking around with huge buttons on that said, Frederick Douglass was a Republican. You know, I just kept looking at my shoes and, you know, not talking to them. But it was, a, it was kind of pathetic. It was like everyone was going to appropriate Douglass somehow to their own partisan end. Uh, even at such a, a kind of national moment. Um, and I guess it will always be thus. It's amazing how Douglas is not, it's almost like Lincoln, not quite that extent, but Douglas appears in the news almost every day now. Um, if it wasn't the use, 
you know, Churchill Downs and Kentucky Derby Day. You all know this. They, they didn't, they didn't play my old Kentucky home with the lyrics. They just played an instrumental. But on the PA at Churchill Downs, they announced a quotation from Frederick Douglass from an 1855 speech where he expressed admiration for Stephen Foster's song. And it is, it's there, it's in the speech. And Douglas says it can even touch the anti-slavery heart. Huh? Uh, just two days ago, I saw somebody, I can't remember now whether it was in the New York Times or maybe Twitter, <laughs> I don't know where I saw it. But somebody said they knew that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was up there in heaven, you know, having a good chat with Abraham Lincoln, uh, Susan Anthony, and Frederick Douglass. So, I mean, it's just, Douglass has become this obligatory uh, person with whom people have to get right uh, or have to find a way to use. Um, and their quotes are there. You can, you can find some quote from Douglass to support almost anything you want to support. Um, and people will continue to do it. And some of us will just complain. <laughs> Well, David, I thank you very much. I'm sure everyone's anxious to catch you on Twitter from here on out. Oh, I don't know about that. I, I may be <laughs> off it in another week or, or under a lawsuit or something. I don't know. What time do we start tomorrow? It's uh, uh, Tomorrow we start at 11. Uh, oh, 11. Oh, okay. Agenda, 11 Eastern time. We are trying to take care of our participants mm -hmm. around the West Coast. Well, that's right. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, and we'll start at 11, and um, we continue throughout the day. There's a schedule online. I yeah. want to thank you again for your it. wonderful remarks and getting us started this evening, and I hope uh, everyone will return tomorrow for, for, for some of our further discussion on Douglas. Well, thank you, Dan, and, uh, and Ed, and everybody who came tonight, and I look forward to tomorrow. Um, so thanks so much, and it's been a great honor for me.